millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, I'm Alva, and you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Gavin Barwell, formerly Theresa May's chief of staff in Number 10 Downing Street. And then you ask us, or more precisely, I ask Stephen about the sudden resignation of Cressida Dick as Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. So I'm really pleased to be joined for today's episode by someone who really is the perfect person to speak to for this political moment. He was Theresa May's chief of staff in number 10 and he was by her side to the very end of her premiership. Before that he was the Conservative MP for Croydon Central from 2010 to 2017 and he's now a Conservative peer and um, also an advisor at PwC including the PwC plug because you have a pristine PwC background there Gavin. Yeah, Great to have you on the podcast. So So you were there, as I was saying, for the last days of May. Does this feel to you like these are the last days of Boris Johnson? I think that's probably the case, although last days can be drawn out quite a long time. Uh, If you think about Theresa's case, it was uh, probably about six months from Mm. when she actually had the vote of confidence in her leadership that she won to when she finally left number 10. So these things can take a while to reach their conclusion. But the reason I would answer your question probably is I think if you look at Boris Johnson's personal polling, somewhere between 60 and 70% of people think he should resign. His net approval rating is currently round about the level Jeremy Corbyn was at before the last election, which is not, that's not somewhere you want to be. And so the million dollar question, I guess, is can he turn that around? And history would tell us that when enough people have made their minds up about you in politics, it's really quite difficult to change their minds. So I would be surprised, ultimately, if he is able to turn those numbers around. And if he's not, sooner or later, Conservative MPs are going to make a change. It's fascinating because we're now in recess, the very beginning of it, and Boris Johnson has held on until then. It didn't look that that was at all certain a few weeks ago. We also now have the unfolding situation in Ukraine. I'm wondering if you think that, changes anything a little bit i think that i mean probably many of the people listening to this have a view on boris johnson morally whether he should go or not based on what he's done but the 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 political reality is that mps don't get rid of the leader of their party unless they're convinced that's really the only option available to them so i'm always conscious when i'm being interviewed about this subject that me talking pragmatically about what's in people's mind 
people kind of think, well, hang on a second, I'm really angry about this, and surely they should be guided by what's right or wrong. But there are the realities, mm. there are the factors that come to play. So uh, two things, I think. Ukraine is a factor. So some people will, certainly the Prime Minister supporters are going around saying, it's a big international crisis brewing at the moment, this is the worst possible time to have a leadership election. And his detractors might argue, well, he can't focus all of his attention on that crisis because he's spending a good chunk of his time trying to secure his own position. So you can argue it both ways. But it, yeah, I think it probably is a factor. The, the big change, mm. I think you were saying, it looked a few weeks ago like he might not get to this point. I think that the key thing was the Metropolitan Police's decision to open an inquiry. Uh, if that hadn't happened, we would have got the full Sue Gray report. And that probably would have been the moment at which MPs decided yes or no, whether they thought what was contained in that report was sufficiently serious that, that he should face a confidence vote. Now, I think most MPs, not everybody, but most MPs are saying, let's wait and see what the conclusions of the police investigation are. And obviously, it's pushed back the point at which we get the full Sue Gray report. So that's why I think things are taking a bit longer to unfold than maybe people thought they might two or three weeks ago. So just to nail you down on that a bit further, how do you, if you had to outline a timetable for this kind of thing, how do you actually see the next maybe six months playing out in terms of, especially as someone who was there by Theresa May's side, as she underwent this same process, you're in a quite unique yeah. position in terms of when would you hazard a guess Conservative MPs could hit the 54-letter threshold? Would Boris Johnson survive that? How do you see that playing out? So several things. I'm going to give you quite a long answer to that. But let me just make a couple mm -hmm. of caveats. Start. Yeah, go ahead. Feel um, free. So the first thing to say is that this, I think the situation in, is interestingly different to Theresa's situation. If you think about mm -hmm. when previously prime ministers have got into trouble, nearly always it's one of two things that causes them the trouble. Either they passionately believe in a policy which a majority of the electorate decide they disagree with, so think Thatcher, poll tax or Blair, Iraq, or in Theresa's case, they believe in something which a large chunk of their own party disagree with. And so they've got an internal problem, not a problem with the electorate, but an internal party problem, which is what Theresa had over her Brexit deal. The, the thing that's unique about this situation is it's a totally self-inflicted wound. It's not about policy. It's, it's about the way the Prime Minister's been running the government. The second bit of colour I want to give before I actually answer your question is MPs are notoriously tight-lipped, many of them, about what they actually think about this. So if you were one of the MPs trying to get rid of Boris Johnson, you neither know how many people have submitted letters, nor do you really know what would happen if there actually was a ballot. And, and what that group don't want is they don't want a ballot and then Boris Johnson wins. So, so many of them will be trying to pick their moment when they think they've got the best chance of success. So now having said all that, let me try and answer your question. And I think probably the easiest way to answer it is to work, is to go in the opposite direction that may seem logical, to start with a long way from now and then work back towards the current day. So the reason I answered your original question in the way I did is that if you agree with me and if your listeners agree with me, that ultimately he's unlikely to change people's minds about him, that lots of people have now got a view of Boris Johnson that is not going to change, then I think that sooner or later, and it could take a long time, Conservative MPs will come to that conclusion. And if they do, if they decide Boris Johnson is not going to win us the next election, they will make a change. I think the thing that we know is that the Conservative Party is more ruthless with its leaders than Labour is. And it doesn't allow people to lead it into an election if it thinks there's a better alternative out there. 
So then coming back, what are the things that could trigger that sooner rather than later? And I'll give you three. So the local election results mm -hmm. could do it. We've obviously got a reasonably big set of local elections in May. And if the Conservative Party did badly in those, that might be enough for MPs to think, OK, the writings, we can see what's going to happen in a general election now and we need to take action. The next thing is some combination of what the police do or decide to do or not to do and the full Sue Gray report. So, for example, if the police issued Boris Johnson with a fixed penalty notice, that may well be for enough MPs, that may well be a, a red line that can't be crossed. The PM is briefing out that he would hold out even if that happens, but it's not really up to him ultimately. It's about what his MPs decide. And then the wild card in all of this. So I think those two things probably say to you, he's safe for a few more weeks yet because it doesn't look to me like the police are about to give us an announcement and the local elections are clearly not till early May. But the wild card is there's some other leak. We, there's clearly been an orchestrated campaign from some people. Dominic Cummings appears to be one of those involved of releasing information and there may well be other things that have been saved up and so when he comes back after the recess there could be another story and ultimately that could trigger the MP. A point could be reached where they think the PM just can't draw a line under these leaks and we've got to move on. So I think to my mind the most likely scenario is a decision at some point in the spring based off either the police or the local elections. But it could drag on. Yeah, so, and, and without those trigger points, I suppose if you were a Conservative MP looking at this right now, um, thinking about when would be the best time to change leader in terms of giving them the best chance to fight the next election, w you would maybe be thinking that now isn't a good time. Would you yeah, agree? I think that? if you were one of the people hoping to replace Boris Johnson, and mm. the, the difficulty with politics, as David Miliband will tell you, is you can't pick your moment. But... In an ideal world, they would be thinking, OK, let Boris Johnson take the local election results. Let him take this really difficult period over the next few months when we've got this sort of peak in cost of living inflation and all of those pressures. And actually, maybe the best thing for us would be a change over the summer. They won't want to leave it too late, mm -hmm. because if you're going to take over, you need enough time to define yourself in the public mind before a general election. But they probably wouldn't want to take over right now. As I said, the David Miliband example is a really good one. You don't in politics necessarily get to choose your ideal moment and, and events may force a decision sooner than some of the people that hope to replace Boris Johnson like. And of course, you haven't named any names there, but certainly people are talking about Rishi Sunak maybe having had a bit of a David Miliband moment and when he stood up and said that he wouldn't have made that Jimmy Savile remark that Boris Johnson did and yet he hasn't moved and he looks now like he's in a little bit of a tricky bind with Boris Johnson. Yeah so I mean I, I haven't spoken to Rishi Sunak so I just to be clear about that this is just my opinion watching it from afar but it looks to me like he and, and a number of other ministers are deeply awkward answering questions on this issue. They're, they're uncomfortable with the lines to take that they're being asked to use by number 10 but obviously you can't stay in government unless you're prepared to support the PM. And again, if I can beg for forgiveness from your listeners, rather than thinking about this is right and wrong and just looking at it from their point of view and the decision they face, the one group where Boris Johnson still has quite strong support is Conservative Party members. So if you're hoping to replace him, if you're the person that sort of tips him up and is disloyal to him, you're probably damaging very significantly your own chances of succeeding. So I suspect a number of these sort of would-be successes are hoping somebody else acts 
but they don't want to be the person that takes that decision first themselves. I think Rishi is probably the front runner for the simple reason that if the Conservative Party did decide to have a change, it would be because it felt it was in a political problem and its prospects of the next election were looking difficult. So in that situation, you don't look so much for the leader who you most agree with in policy terms. You look for the person who gives you the best chance of winning. And the polling, I think, is pretty clear that the Conservative Party would do significantly better under Rishi than it would do under any of the other potential uh, leaders, including the current prime minister. So I get the impression that you don't think that Rishi Sunak is damaging himself by holding. Fire. I think there is a risk to him. I think there's a risk. You know, there's, it's, it's a very difficult situation that cabinet ministers are in because the public could, over time, move from just being angry with the prime minister to being angry with the people who are not taking action to replace him. So there's risk on all sides here for them in, when they're trying to determine what's the right thing to do. They've obviously got to think about whether they are comfortable, prepared to defend the way that the Prime Minister has behaved. And I think actually the sort of smear of Keir Starmer for many of them was even more uncomfortable than the sort of lines on Partygate. Um, But they've also Mm. then got to think about what's the sort of, if you wait and see how these things play out, does it actually do even more damage to the party and to their own reputations over time? Versus if they acted preemptively, would that essentially you know, prevent their chances of succession. So from their point of view, there's a number of difficult calculations here. And uh, you're speaking, I, I noticed you're speaking very, as you say, talking pragmatically rather than emotionally about all of this. But listeners who look at your Twitter, for example, or who know much about you politically will know that you're not particularly aligned with Boris Johnson and that you know, you've made it quite clear that you weren't happy with those remarks about Jimmy Savile, for example, and that you really supported Manira Mirza's principled resignation and so on. So I'm just wondering, as a as still a senior conservative, what it feels like for you personally at the moment to observe what's happening in your party? So I, for, for me as a conservative, but also for the country, I think it's deeply depressing. I'm depressed about the sort of state of our politics. I'm depressed about the position our party has got, my party has got itself into. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very difficult when I come on these, do these kinds of interviews, because I suppose what you want me to do is try and give my insight to your listeners about what I think is likely to happen. So I try and do that in a reasonably dispassionate way, but just for the avoidance of doubt, I am furious with the way the Prime Minister and some of his aides appear to have behaved during that lockdown. I can remember very clearly what my life was like in April and May and June of 2020. I can, you know, my mum lives on her own. I was cycling over there every day and sitting in the garden, metres away from her, talking through a window to, to ensure that she had some human contact. And, you know, I think the reason he is in such political trouble is that nearly of all of us, it, this story affects us because we can remember what it was like. I thought the intervention from the new Conservative MP Aaron Bell when the Prime Minister made that statement. And he said, you know, describe, I think it was his grandmother's funeral and said directly to the Prime Minister, do you think I was an idiot for obeying the rules? Yeah. So I feel that very strongly. But on top of that original offence, it seems to me that there have been two further offences committed. Anybody who's ever worked in politics at a senior level will tell you, because all politicians make mistakes, all politicians get things wrong. When it comes out that you've done something wrong, the right thing, the best thing to do, pragmatically, and actually the right thing to do, is own up and apologise. And sometimes the offence might be so serious, it costs you your job. 
but it gives you the best chance of getting through it. Whereas what's happened in this story is going to go down in years to come as like lesson 1.0 about how not to manage a political scandal. The truth has literally been extracted from <laughs> over about three or four months in the most painful and embarrassing way to the point where, you know, mm. I was watching the other day, I was watching a White House uh, press briefing where the prime president's um, press spokesman was asked whether the president of the United States had ever been ambushed by a cake. So you know, the whole sort of the, the world is watching this play out and it's not good for the country's reputation, let alone the Conservative Party's reputation or Boris Johnson's reputation. And then, as you said, I'm not actually going to repeat it, the smear he used against Keir Starmer, I just thought was, there's enough serious issues that people in this country have legitimate differences of opinion on about what's the right thing to do for the country that we can argue about with each other without having to resort to that kind of tactics. It's not the kind of politics that serves the country well. And, you know, I thought it was telling. The reason I praised Manira Mirza, she and I, don't see eye to eye on everything, mm. but she's someone who, and it was clear from her letter actually, that she has a, a real affection for the Prime Minister and she served him loyally in Number 10 and before that in City Hall. So this is not someone who's got a grudge against him. And people often say to me, oh, you're just bitter because of what he did to Theresa May or you're a Remainer and this is nothing to do with what he's actually done. You're just angry with him. Here's someone who you couldn't level any of those charges against. She is a big... Boris Johnson fan who has loyally served him and she wasn't prepared to continue doing so given his sort of refusal to to retract his words and apologise for what he said and that's why I praised her because that can't have been an easy thing for her to do. The hardest thing in politics is when someone you really like and admire does something wrong because your instinct is you know to stick by your friends and so that's why I, that's why I commented in the way I did on that letter. I have quick quicker technical question for you just because you are a former chief of staff in number 10 obviously Boris Johnson is trying to um, shake up his operation in an attempt to save himself do you think that will work but also having been an MP and then taken on the chief of staff role after is it is that possible for Steve Barclay to do both to be chief of staff and also a minister and an MP? It's definitely possible, but he can't do the job in the same way that I or Ed Llewellyn or um, Jonathan Powell would have done it. So he's clearly combining a number of roles and that means he's going to have to do that chief of staff job in a different way. But the one thing I would say mm. is that in, in terms of his personal qualities, I think Steve is a really good appointment because he's smart, He's incredibly diligent. He will read all of the material that is going into the Prime Minister's box. He's got very high standards and he's a, and he's a decent person. So if I put my hand up and declare a personal interest, he's someone I would consider a friend. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a challenge for him combining the roles, but in terms of personal qualities, I think that's it, he's a good appointment. Will it be enough to change Boris Johnson's future? I, I doubt that. I think that is going to be determined, as I said, by what the police have to say, what Sue Gray has to say, the local election results, and whether he can turn around his personal popularity. So it may stop further mess-ups happening, but I, I don't think you can undo what's happened before. But nonetheless, you know, if you get the, if you get Downing Street working in a better way, that's a good thing. It's a good thing, not just if you're a fan of Boris Johnson and you want him to stay, it's good for the country as well. And it's worth saying, this isn't the first Downing Street reset. Dan Rosenfeld, who recently announced his, he was standing down as chief of staff, he was brought in after the original 
Boris Johnson yeah. Downing Street Mark yeah. One imploded, basically. So the real question I think Conservative MPs have to ask themselves is whether Boris Johnson can change. It's not about the advisors he has around him, that the things that have gone wrong are calls that he has made, judgments that he has made. It was his decision to replace the highly able, experienced principal private secretary that was there before with Martin Reynolds. It's his decision to bring Dominic Cummings into number 10. He no doubt regrets that now. And we now know from Nero's letter, for example, I think before some people were saying, we don't know if the problem is Boris Johnson hasn't got anyone around him that gives him good advice that tells him when he's wrong or whether he's just not listening to the advice. We know from Manira's letter, at least on the smear on Starmer, that he was told not to do it and went ahead and did it anyway. So the real question for Conservative MPs, is Boris Johnson going to change? So you clearly think that Boris Johnson is the problem rather than his Downing Street operation from what you've said. But I'm wondering if you think that the the problem goes a bit deeper or what the longer term impact of having him as leader is because I was struck I've been struck while you've been talking that you're clearly frustrated with how things are with Boris Johnson and you've called certain things out you're also still a conservative and very generous for example in your remarks about Steve Barclay and you know someone like Chris Patton gave an interview recently that really struck me where he sort of you know former Tory chairman and he was saying he doesn't see the Conservative Party as a Conservative Party anymore it's not his party anymore it's not him that's changed it's his party do you feel like that I feel like it's maybe a more mixed picture with you picture I mean I think it's a really it's a very good question it's a really complicated question so let me let me just start with the first bit of what you said I think it's undeniable that the issue is around Boris. Now, that's not to say that number 10 has, the, the staffing operation has been perfect, but he put in place that staffing operation both times, right? You re- the Mark 1 and the Mark 2 and the Mark 3, they're all ultimately his decisions. I really dislike it when people start attacking his wife, Carrie. She can't take any decisions in number 10. She may have views, she may express those views to him, but ultimately it's him that's making the decisions and we should focus on that. Now, then to go to your question, um, I'm going to try and answer it in in three bits, as it were. So first up, I think it's undeniably the case that this Conservative Party is quite different from the Conservative Party that I grew up in in the 1990s and through to the sort of Cameron May era. And that's not just about Boris Johnson. I think it's really important to understand there is a realignment going on in our politics. It's been going on since about the year 2000. And what has basically happened is that socioeconomic class has stopped being the main predictor of how people are likely to vote. And it's now about your age, your university education, whether you live in a city or elsewhere. So when I first got involved in politics, basically constituencies that had large proportions of working class people voted Labour and constituencies that were more middle-class voted conservative. And that has completely broken down. It's not just a British phenomenon. It's not just about Brexit. It's happening in the US as well. And the Conservative Party's policies have changed to reflect the different voter coalition that they now have. Now, coming from the perspective of the New Statesman and your listeners, some of those changes may be quite welcome and some of them may be less welcome. Let me give you two examples. It's clear that this Conservative Party believes in a higher level of public spending and taxation than a Margaret Thatcher-style Conservative Party did, despite all the 
talk about we're going to get back to low taxes. If you look at that levelling up white paper or you look at the recovery plan for the NHS, there's no question that state spending as a proportion of GDP is going to remain much higher under this government than it would have been under Thatcher. Then on the other side of the coin, there's much more of these kind of cultural type of issues, identity politics, which I suspect your listeners would be less sympathetic to than the, than the sort of uh, more centrist economic approach that the government is taking. When I look at it, I, I, my starting point is it's undeniable that the Conservative Party has changed. And I think actually some of the changes are for the good from my perspective and some of them are for the bad. Uh, so I have a sort of nuanced view of it. And we don't yet know if he's going to go on officer and we have to wait for events to play out. But if you asked me, you know, if Boris Johnson does go over this, what's his sort of political obituary? Yeah, again, unlike Chris Patton, I'd probably give a nuanced answer. I would say when he took over in 2019, the Conservative Party was in a terrible hole. Now, some of his supporters would blame Theresa May and me for that hole whereas I might point the figure at some of them. But whoever you put responsible, we were in a hole. And he did defeat Corbyn, which from my perspective was very important for the country. And he did break the deadlock over Brexit. Even if I don't like the particular deal that he did, I would have to concede that the, the situation the country was in where we just couldn't resolve the issue was very bad for the country. So there's, and, and then I could say to you, like on levelling up or on net zero, I strongly agree with what he's trying to do. On the other side of the coin, all of the warnings that Theresa and I gave him about the kind of Brexit deal that he was pursuing have been proved right. The damage that's been done to our economy and more particularly to politics in Northern Ireland by introducing a border in the RFC. You know, all of the sort of standards in public life issue that we've been talking about early on in this interview and the sort of purging from the Conservative Party of people like Philip Hammond, Amber Rudd, David Gork, Rory Stewart, uh, and then people like Jeremy Hunt and Greg Clark and Julian Smith, who are, for reasons that I find it impossible to understand, left on the back benches. It has meant that through the pandemic, we had a much weaker government. The Conservative Party has deprived itself of a whole load of talent. My view of him... He's very nuanced. I think there's some good things he's done that have, from my perspective, been good. And there's some other things I disagree very strongly with. It's been great to have you on the New Statesman podcast. A final quick question. If Boris Johnson does go, who would you want to replace him? So I, I, I don't have a sort of fixed answer to that. I think I'd want to see who the candidates were and I would want to listen to them. One of the things that I try and say on my Twitter feed, there's obviously a lot of people angry with the government and the Conservative Party at the moment. And obviously, I know a lot of the lead characters and there are good, talented people still there, both within the cabinet and people who've mysteriously been left outside the cabinet. So I would want to look at who put their names forward and I would want to listen what they had to say. I don't expect there to be a candidate who's going to say exactly what I would like to hear, because bluntly, the Conservative Party has to appeal to what its current voter coalition is. So it's, we're not going to have a candidate that I think wants to go back to a Theresa May style Brexit, for example. So I would want to listen to what they have to say and, and see which one I thought was the right direction for the Conservative Party to go into. But the one thing I would say is that one of the factors is going to have to be a pragmatic one about who gives the Conservative Party the best electoral prospects. And at the moment, from the polling, Rishi Sunak looks to be in a strong position on that metric, certainly. 
a careful, not quite endorsement of Rishi Sunak there. <laughs> for them in America, because they can't say exactly what they would do when they're in government. So I think you've got to wait and listen to what people have to say. Uh, Gavin Barwell, thank you very much for joining us on the New Statesman podcast. Hello, it's Alva here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok. And over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And now it's time for a section I'm going to call I Ask Stephen. Straining the format slightly. <laughs> this is why Stephen's really leaving. Yeah, this is central to why I'm in my exit interview. I'm just going to play them a clip of this podcast. The other big story, apart from the unfolding situation in Ukraine, the the other sort of big story since we last spoke on the podcast is the abrupt resignation of Cressida Dick as commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. Stephen, what do you make of it? In some ways, the so, yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this question with this, with a dull anecdote about my social life. I was at a friend's um, birthday party uh, this weekend, and this friend also works in the political world, and so there were lots of people from you know, across the political spectrum, and several of them asked me what I thought about it. And uh, the thing I found striking was that every single one of them, when I said even the events of last week are a reason she should have gone thought I was talking about a different story. I, I was actually talking about the Sunday Times' Emily Dugan, uh, a story about a woman got mugged, goes into the police office, police station, the police officer's like, oh, you're a bit of all right, aren't you? I paraphrase, but I, I, I emphasise I'm paraphrasing to make it more, not less family-friendly. Bombards her with emails asking her out, doesn't even catch her mugger, is found guilty of gross misconduct, still has a job in the force, working closely to Cressida Dick. If you had a teacher struck off for that, and they were then given another job working to the head of the multi-academy trust, the head of the multi-academy trust has to go. If you did that for a hospital, the head of the trust has to go. I think, so I guess my main thing was surprise that it turned out there there was a limit. At this point, it's like, it's kind of 
Cressida Dix uh, failed to resign is like this broken buckaroo model of British politics. I was surprised and it turned out there was a limit. I think it, it sums up why she needed to go, that even in her moment of exit, she chose to go with a statement basically saying, I can't do this because the mayor of London says he has no confidence in me, without in any way acknowledging that Londoners might be upset that on her watch, the world's most... I mean, if you haven't seen the excellent uh, BBC show Four Lives, really brilliant, non-sensationalised, incredibly sensitive account of how the the bungled investigation of one murder allowed allowed a man to kill three more people with a with, would not exactly have have stretched a Scooby Doo villain in terms of its level of of execution and cunning. You know, no acknowledgement. You know, the families of you know the Smallman family after they posed with pictures, took pictures of, of their bodies. No acknowledgement of the the pain felt by the fa- family of Sarah Everard, etc., etc. So I think, in some ways, it is a relief that it has happened. But the the main question I think for anyone who wants to reform the Met and get better policing in this country is why did it take so much longer for Cressida Dick to be forced out than I think the organisation, the leader of any other large organisation would have had to go some time ago. And that is still a little bit for me the mystery around this because I wrote about this on Friday for a morning call. It's up on the New Statesman website if people want to give a little read to the thinking of Sadiq Khan around this decision. So from the conversations I've had, it seems clear that this was just the point where he felt personally really disgusted by what he was hearing about the police, particularly that IOPC report into Charing Cross, but also teamed with that having had lots and lots of these moments of frustration, this was just the point where he didn't feel like there was a robust plan to fix it. And I've been told that's what makes this different to, for example, the Sarah Everard events last year, that after that was just as shocking, there was a similar crisis of confidence among Londoners, but there was a promised plan to fix it. That's, you know, from those close to Sadiq Khan, that's the line. But I think that's still very confusing. The bit about this being a moment of distress for the mayor, a real like he was personally disgusted, it reminded him of the Met of his childhood um, and how deeply personally he feels this and um, wanting to channel the feelings of Londoners and eventually just feeling this was the last straw. All of that makes sense and I suppose makes Londoners feel heard because the, everything coming out of that Charing Cross police station report in particular was just horrifying and really distressing and just on a personal level I know it's just lots and lots of women I know we're talking about that in the days after but it still doesn't really make sense I think to have waited this long because it doesn't feel to me any worse than it did a year ago and Anush who's on a well-deserved holiday today is very well informed at City Hall and understands that Sadiq Khan was also coming under a bit of pressure from colleagues at City Hall who were becoming frustrated with him that he hadn't yet tried to remove her. I'm wondering, that must have been a factor, but I think there, there is just a fundamental mystery here as to why it took that long. And you've said, you've said the same thing. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, well, as you say, Anoush is impeccably well connected on this kind of stuff. But I think um, in general, look, look as shocking as, as the content of the... Well, actually, no, the thing is, the, the content of that IOPC report is very bad, but unless you have been living somewhere in the Arctic for the last 18 months, I'm afraid I don't see how anyone can have been all that shocked by it. I think the reality is, is that, and it's not like the proposal to address the issues raised by the murder of Sarah Everard 
were remotely adequate, right? The underlying problem of the with the killing of Sarah Everard was that it showed that not only the Mets but the Kent Police and others vetting for one one run reason or another was not adequate, and we still don't really know why that was and is. The Mets' approach was to announce a bunch of sort of like kind of like issue changes in sort of adjacent policy areas it's a bit like going oh i've been found with my hand in the till but don't worry my plan is to like buy a nice blue till it's good for you but this isn't really what really relevant to the issue i think it's possible to overdose on cynicism but seeing as this is my penultimate appearance so i feel i'm allowed to give voice to my 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 worst impulses i think the underlying issue isn't Sadiq Khan had been coming under a lot of internal pressure. There had been a number of very tense representations made to Sophie Linden, who is one of the deputy mayors, but is in law the Police and Crime Commissioner for London, about the fact that, you know, when Four Lives came out, although people had raised it at the time, people going, look, when are we going to get any sense that the Met has has in any way absorbed that it should not have have let this man kill three times? That I think that politically... Sadiq Khan had to act in order to maintain his internal, yeah, like his opportunity to labour. I think it does, I think what it does show is that there is no doubt in my mind, and indeed we can actually exactly stress test this, right, that as bad as the scandal around the, the Greater Manchester Police and how it was dealing with some instances of crime was, as bad as other stories about that police force have been in recent years, the reality is that Andy Burnham had to act, and we can have another day, debate another time about whether or not the approach she's taken since has been the right one. Oh, but, but Stephen, we can't. Well, God, that's we, true. We can't. Yeah. <laughs> the li- we, listeners will never know what you think about Andy Burnham. We never will, right? Yeah. Anyway, we won't because we don't have time. But but I think ultimately the reason why Andy Burnham had to act is it's very clear that the buck stops with him for policing in Greater Manchester. And I think the problem with a lot of the, the layers of of accountability is when you have directed directly elected police and crime commissioners nobody knows who they are and although both labor and conservative had some quite exciting candidates from outside the the world of politics in the first and second election in the third the the most recent set you really do start to have the kind of oh someone who might have been fourth in the list for the mep in a bad year for labor in london in 2009 or bad year for the conservatives in the southwest right the candidate quality is just not what it is the public record a recognition of them is just not what you'd like it to be. And in London, you have this kind of weird sort of, oh, it's his fault, no, it's her fault, where it is not sufficiently clear which one of the Home Secretary and the and the Mayor of London is the one who ultimately has to, yeah, has to pull the trigger. And I think it does show that, among other changes to the Met, it, that counter-terrorism responsibility should sit with the National Crime Agency, which is, which is very clear the Home Secretary is responsible for. And then you have the Met, reporting to the mayor and it being very clear that the mayor is responsible for that. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and our political editor for now, Stephen Bush. And we were also joined by special guest in part one, Gavin Barwell. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.